Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome back to the Pre-Paces Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Williams, and today we are sitting down to have a chat with another Paces success story. And this is certainly a saga which has been all over hashtag med Twitter for the last year or so. And that is the tale of Benjamin Besker, whose revision journey extends to an extraordinary 14 months of total preparation. Ben and I talk about exam delays, overthinking on Paces stations, and towards the end of the show, Ben gives his top three tips for any listeners that are close to sitting the exam. Ben was funny and brilliantly engaging, as well as speaking so candidly about his first unsuccessful attempt. It was a real treat to sit down and hear his story. And for more from Ben, you can find him on Twitter at Beska, that's B-E-S-K-A. I really hope Ben's experience gives you some valuable tips in your preparation for paces. So without further ado, let's jump into our conversation with Benjamin Beska. Welcome to the Pre-Paces podcast, and this week we are joined by true hashtag med Twitter royalty, Dr. Ben Besker. If you're not familiar with the UK med Twitter scene, Ben has essentially made his MRCP Paces journey public through regularly posting updates to his progress, including delays and cancellations to his exams alongside hilarious medical meme content. After monopolizing the med Twitter paces scene, Ben recently found that the saga had finally come to an end and that he had passed his paces. So we are so grateful that he's here to give us an insight into how he's managed being a med Twitter influencer alongside his revision. So Ben, huge congratulations and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. I say it's an hour I've passed. I need to find a new niche to uh, fit into. Now I can't make any more paces jokes, but um, I'm going to continue a bit longer by doing this podcast. So. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. And Ben, just for the listeners who um, might be from overseas or might not follow Med Twitter or might just live in a hole in the ground, what stage of training are you at and where are you in the country right now? Um, so I live and work in Newcastle. So I'm an academic clinical fellow, uh, internal medicine training in cardiology. So I'm CT2 currently. I started initially revising for paces back when I was a CT1 um, and I've just passed it now, just before moving into um, IMT3. 
Perfect. So I can't wait to hear all about your Pacers journey. So without further ado, let's get into the show. So my first question for you is basically, how did you get to be so well known for your Pacers related content on Twitter? Broadcasting my stream of consciousness, I expect. (laughs) Um, I think my challenges with Pacers during the pandemic probably mirrors most, or if not everyone else's challenges as well. Um, And it's just, I think, reflective that my opinions probably match everyone else's and it's a nice cathartic way of, you know, getting over such a invasive exam that sort of gets into every aspect of your life, you know, by, by sharing it with other people that have been through the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and one of the things I think which a lot of people can sort of empathise with you is, is probably that you're saying what a lot of people are sort of saying in their heads. And I think that's probably the reason why, why probably it's so popular and that a lot of, a lot of, people on Twitter have either been in that situation or are going through that situation themselves. And and probably what you're saying is just what everyone is secretly saying to themselves in their heads. Um, I suspect you're probably, I suspect you're probably right. So you mentioned uh, just a second ago, but when did you actually first book onto the MRCP for sitting, sitting the exam? So it was back in CT1. Um, it was me and my mate in November, 2019, a long time ago decided we might as well start revising for paces because we need to get it over with. So we booked on in November 2019 for the first sitting of 2020. Uh, we had an email saying, uh, this was obviously all pre-pandemic, we had an email saying, oh, so the sitting opens in January 2020, so your exam may be any time from January 2020. So we thought, oh, crap, we've only, end of November, we've just applied, we've got four weeks and then we have to sit it so we massively panicked started revising all the time you know went properly all in paces revision mode um and then my date actually was end of march so um i could actually pull back a little bit from it um so that's when it all started the the tail of my sitting paces so november 2019 Obviously, things started to kick off in sort of late February, early March. So how sort of prepared were you in the lead up to March and the end of March? Or or did you sort of sense that this was going to become something bigger, which was going to disrupt your revision and exam? Yeah, so my mate sat it a few days before my date and he sat it and passed. Um, And this was in the ramp up to the pandemic being a thing and Everyone kind of knew that it was going to be cancelled because you couldn't really ethically carry out an exam when there's a new bug about that no one really knows about and we don't know how it affects people. Then, on the other hand, the college was saying that, oh, no, it's still going ahead. So we were kind of still practising with in the back of our mind saying, oh, it's probably going to be cancelled. And it got to the point where I think the government were announcing lockdowns and things like that. And at that point, it was clearly untenable for the exam to happen. So I was doing some cursory revision. I remember I was on study leave at the time because it was cancelled about a day before I was meant to sit in. So I was in some private study leave. And I remember sitting down and just doing some reading. And ironically, I was reading about Station 5, Fever and a Returning Traveller. (laughs) (laughs) I thought, oh, this is very apt. And then 
but not really properly revising because I kind of knew it would be cancelled. And indeed, yeah, so then I found out it was cancelled and I found out actually via Twitter. So the president of the Royal College tweeted something to say, oh, all all our exams are going to be cancelled because of the pandemic. So, yeah, so that's how I found out. And then when was the original sitting in March? When was that sort of rescheduled to, that initial sitting? So that initial sitting was just cancelled outright. And they said, you, you will keep your money. <laughs> and you can use that money to apply again in the future for a future sitting. Um, the summer sitting was cancelled. So the middle sitting, peak pandemic was cancelled as well. And then there was an opportunity to apply to the autumn sitting. So the number two sitting. I applied and got a space in the October 2020 sitting. And in the meantime, obviously, the pandemic was happening and everyone knows how that was in the middle for, you know, medics working. It's all very busy. But we, I got a sitting in October 2020. That's the one I set, sat. So I sat the October 2021. But I failed that one, unfortunately. On the, on the history station and uh, one of the station fives didn't go too well. So that's when that's my first sitting. So I started revising November of 2019 and sat it October 2020. Okay, so we'll come on to your sort of experience of the exam itself. But just thinking there was, you know, seven months, albeit, you know, completely reasonable, I guess, at the time request from the Royal College to delay it by that period of time. Mm. But, you know, you'd had a very short period of time before that initial, initial expected sitting. And then to have that degree of gap between two separate exams did you just basically take a you know really long break between it and then start again in August September well yeah no that's exactly what I did I thought um so the pandemic was happening people were being um redeployed and I was actually due to take some academic time to do some research and I was redeployed from academic time to go back clinically so really the exam was put back of my mind because I thought you can't keep revising for, you know, nine months or however long it will be. You'd be properly burnt out. So I just kind of forgot about it all um, and just focused on clinical work, COVID. In about September, I think I started revising, maybe August, end of August. And then in terms of your preparedness for the exam, so you, you had the initial October sitting. And do you think the either the delay or the circumstances around the pandemic how much did that affect your ability to prepare yourself in the best way for that first sitting so obviously in the in the midst of the pandemic the way that we practiced medicine changed completely and, and the conditions we were seeing changed completely everything was COVID there was no classic paces cases in the hospital everything was COVID there was no clinics arguably it was unethical to go around the wards, traipsing, traipsing around the wards during the midst of the pandemic, looking for, you know, the soft signs and someone that is probably the only reason they're in hospital is because they have COVID. It affected revision and it, it's, it sort of, it's, I feel, I felt a bit like all the revision I did the first time was wasted um, because you you revise and I got to the point of, you know, the, the day before an exam, you sort of, well, you hope that that's the point that you feel ready to sit the exam. And you have peak knowledge and you've done all your work and then that was it was cancelled and I was like oh okay so all that work kind of been I've done the work now and now it's gone and you forget about it and you can't revise in the meantime as I've said because of COVID and, and then starting again coming up to October was very difficult because you had to effectively start again from point one you know so I opened my book at the beginning and I always remember the f- very first page in my revision book is pulmonary fibrosis 
Um, and I must have read that page about 30 times. <laughs> um, so, yeah, so starting again is very difficult, particularly in the context of how much pressure, you know, the NHS generally, everyone, everyone's exams have been cancelled, you know, surg- the surgical exams as well have been cancelled. Um, and everyone has been under so much pressure um, in the NHS. So starting again and revising within that wider context, context of COVID was actually quite difficult. Yeah, definitely. And as you said, not just the pressure on, on trainees, but also the physicians who end up, you know, teaching, you know, prospective candidates, usually in, in normal circumstances, I'm sure they'd only be too happy to, you know, organise teaching on the wards, take you to see these classic cases. But they must have been under a huge amount of pressure and and equally unable to free up that time in order to, to teach us. I know we certainly found that down, down here as well. So, yeah, yeah, so there wasn't really any paces teaching, which I think is probably an appropriate thing. You know, physicians, consultants, they were all busy, redeployed, COVID rotors, etc. Basically, it was all hands on deck, service provision, keeping everyone safe, you know, that kind of approach. And education, appropriately, I think, took a back seat for that, um, for that middle bit. How much do you think that fed into, you know, your first attempt in October, which unfortunately you didn't manage to pass? So I think it got to the point where I think it is possible to over-revise for something and spend too much time thinking of the little things and overthinking everything um, and trying to over-paces a case, which on the, case, on, the, on the surface of it is actually probably quite a simple case. But because you spent nine months a year reading about rare genetic things and you can kind of over-egg the pudding a little bit. And I think that that fed into particularly one of my station fives um, in that October sitting. Um, I was trying to think of rare paces things that I've read about, but actually it wasn't, it was just a simple case. So I think over-egging the pudding, being feeling a bit burnt out from everything, but then still having to do the exam and all those kind of emotions um, came into it, I think. Um, it was certainly very challenging for me, but for everyone else, I think, as well, sitting it because of just the impact of the pandemic and then the impact of reading over and over and over again and how that affects your thinking and your frame of reference and your differentials and things like that. Yeah, definitely. And I think the part of becoming sharp to sit the exam is having seen the relevant signs in at least the relatively recent past. What you were saying earlier about, you know, the the cases just weren't coming to hospital. We weren't seeing it. And where I work in Bristol, it was the same within the cardiology team. We, we were seeing, you know, very few patients come in with, you know, chest pain, which I think was a theme that was sort of persisting through the pandemic that people weren't presenting with the usual types of problems. I don't want to dwell too much on on that first sitting because, as we all know, there's a there's a happy ending at the end of this story somewhere. So, um, just moving forward, thinking about the the second your second sitting. You sat in the October, found out you hadn't been successful probably December, Christmas time. So then you made the decision to resit again. And how, how did that go for you? So when did you sit? Where and when was the rescheduled date for then? So I was meant so I applied again. Um and as you say, yes, it was around December time. Um I applied again and my sitting was scheduled for March twenty twenty one in Cornwall. So nice and close to Newcastle. Um, so I started revising again after Christmas for that. Revising, revising, as you do, you know. A few weeks before I was meant to sit in March, I got an email from the MRCP, like an admission document, 
you all you get when you apply, you get an admission document that says where you sit it and what time you have to get there. And it was for a date in May in Brighton. So I was like, mm, I, I don't know what this is or what. So I, I, I no other, no other, you know, company information other than a new admission document. So I called the MRCP. They were like, oh yeah, so the March sitting in Cornwall has been cancelled. So you now you've been rearranged and you now have to sit in Brighton in May. I was like, okay, okay, good, good. <laughs> and the first you heard of that was the admission document you got sent. Yes. So <laughs> yes. Because um, I remember because I was revising. I was. I, I think I was on on the ward, you know, doing your paces revision with your mates on the ward. And I got an email saying, oh, please attend this exam in, in May in Brighton. I was like, oh, that's odd. And initially I thought it was like a spam email or trying to get some money from me, for, you know, I, I don't know. But then I called the college and some nice woman told me that, oh, no, the, because of COVID, which is obviously not a novel thing still in March 2021, they've had to cancel at short notice the Cornwall City. I was like, okay, fine. So now I stopped revising for a bit. <laughs> I guess you'd started revising again just after Christmas. So again, you were in the same situation. And how prepared were you at that point when you found that it had been delayed again? Um, so I was revised. So it was me and me and my friend were revising together for it, and we were in a similar situation. Not the friend that passed the first time; he was looking and got managed to sit at another friend, and we were in the same position for you know cancelled exams last minute, and revising again for the same sitting. And we were saying actually, I think. This time, I felt more prepared than I did the first time. I don't know if some of that is just psychological because you go over the same things and you reinforce it so you feel like you're readier, more ready. Probably an element of, well, I must be more ready because I'm revising more for the exam. So if I'm less ready now than before, you know, something's not working. So I certainly felt more ready for the exam. And it it wasn't sort of, I wasn't at the peak of my knowledge yet because it was a few weeks before it was cancelled. It wasn't the day before. Again, I'd, I'd done all my work. I'd re-revise the difficult things for me, which is neurology. I can't ever get it to sit. So I have to start from scratch each time. So I felt like I've done that again, revised it again, ready to go into the exam, and then it was cancelled again. So then you essentially sort of sat down again after being you know, psychologically prepared to sit in a, in a matter of weeks. So how difficult was it to sort of psychologically and emotionally sort of pick yourself back up from being having the rug pulled out from under you so it's very challenging I never actually I never appreciated before the impact that just an exam can have on on your whole life personal and professional life because it's kind of all-encompassing as I said earlier it's a bit it's invasive it affects everything you do and you know you do the ward round at work and you're thinking oh we need to finish the ward round because I need to go and do some revision and it affects you at home because oh I can't you know we can't have that weekend away because of COVID number one but number two because I need to revise for this exam and it's just one of those things where you keep revising 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 and I was like oh it's, it's annoying because I could have just if I knew it was going to be in May anyway I could have just not revised January February March and you know have those months off um, so I think it's just a combination of the pandemic and the pressures of that and the fact that I've been constantly revising, it just, it, it just, it's very heavy on you, you know. And then it feels like the communication from the college around the time wasn't really that good. So you felt like you were revising for an exam that may or may not happen. I mean, it's that uncertainty in it all that was very difficult, I think, at least for me. Yeah, it almost smacks a bit of, you know, like a football manager finding out he's been sacked on, on Twitter or something like that. When it's like, you know, it's such a like you said, it's been taking up so much of your life, so much of your time. And then just to find out almost by accident that, oh, by the way, it's 
two months later than you thought. Oh, and, and it's probably a couple of hundred miles from where you thought it was going to be. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I sympathise a lot with the with with the situation. But um, anyway, so more more positively, you know, you're leading up to the May exam. So you said you felt relatively prepared for the March exam. That was delayed a bit. But I guess the, in the couple of months, were you just keeping much the same routine? Maybe didn't have as big a gap between your previous sittings. So I guess just keep keeping a lot of the same routine, but maybe aiming to peak again at, at the sort of May time and, and develop that sharpness nearer, nearer to that time. Well, yeah, exactly. So I, I, I didn't want to carry on full steam whole hog because you would well at least me I would burn out by the time I I would sit it again so I just what I said is that one day a week and my day was Thursday um, I would revise the pieces on that day um, just to maintain knowledge so I'd, I'd go over things again that I've already gone over before but just to keep the knowledge in my mind and a couple of nights a week whenever people were about in the hospital I'd go about and see cases but I wasn't hugely invested as as you would be if your exam was as if your exam was next week. So, so it's just more I just kept the knowledge ticking over because I, I knew I didn't want to forget it all and then have to start from scratch again in you know a month, six weeks time. So it's more just a case of ticking over really. So just thinking now in sort of the immediate time period before that sitting in May, how did you arrange the sort of logistics of it in terms of travel? You already said, you know, it was, it was a long way away from where you are in Newcastle. Um, so because I'm a masochist, I drove, but there, there, there was method to the madness. My, so there was lots of work happening at the time on the East Coast mainline. Presumably the trains were quiet. So they said, Oh, we can do work on the line and no one will care. Um, and, when I tried to book it, they said, oh, just so you know, the, book the train, sorry. Uh, they said, just so you know, they might be cancelled at last minute, short notice. And I thought, okay, that's the last thing I need is to get halfway to Brighton and then the train be cancelled and my exam's tomorrow. So I thought, okay, I'll just suck it up and drive. So it's about a five and a half, six hour drive from Newcastle. So I drove down just because I didn't want to have any of the stress of the train in addition to, you know, the stress of the exam. And then did you just get like a hotel or an Airbnb somewhere in Brighton and then just, um, and, and yeah, the, the other thing I was going to say is, did you just get an Airbnb or a hotel in Brighton and then did you arrive like the day before, like the day before, I guess? Yeah, so I arrived the day before my exam um, and I stayed in a hotel, then sat the exam on the, the day after, so the exam day. But then just because it was so far away and my sitting was in the afternoon, so my, my exam started at 1pm. Um, I didn't want to finish my exam at five, six o'clock p.m. and then do its five and a half hour drive back. So I actually had a hotel the day of the exam as well. The only thing I will say is that long way from home and finishing exam and then going back and sitting in a hotel room on your own is, is very boring. <laughs> yeah, especially because because you said this has taken up so much of your life for so long. There must have been a huge amount of relief, but also in that situation, you're so, it's just also a huge anticlimax because you've you know, invested so much time. You finally get to this huge moment, you sit the exam and then you go back and you sit in a hotel room and everything's just carried on as normal. Yes, exactly. I mean, it was a fairly average hotel room as well, so it wasn't even you know, relaxing and you know, <laughs> it wasn't even a nice experience. And actually, well, actually after, after I sat the exam and after I left, 
I was 100% sure I'd failed. 100% sure. And obviously I was wrong, shockingly, because I passed. I suppose it goes to show that you can never predict your own... You're not very good at predicting your own performance in, in something. Um, so much so that because of my first sitting, I thought I passed and I failed it. So in my sample size of one, you cannot predict your own performance in the exam. So just don't try. Yeah, that was, well, that was going to be one of the questions I was going to ask you later on, actually, is, is how good is your gut feeling at, at predicting that sort of thing? Exceptionally poor. Yeah, so I thought I, so I had my, got my feedback from both station from both exams. Um, you, you, so you know which state, which stations, your marks in each station. Um, the first time I thought I absolutely nailed the history station because I th- even now my opinion is that I think it's very difficult to fail a history station because whilst you're in there, you, sh- you, you have a feel of how it's going and what's happening and who you're talking to and if you're picking up the information, linking it together. So I took a history, thought it went well. Um, left that was my last station um i left i managed i got zero marks in the history station well no i know that's a lie actually i got two marks for the patient safety uh domain so i didn't insult the patient and that's probably (laughs) the only thing that the examiners could say went well about me in that station so that shows absolutely how far detached i am or i was or i probably continue to be about my own performance in these things and that's a history station, which I think arguably it's easier to know if you're going, if it's going well or badly. So yeah, so do not judge your own performance. Do not trust your own gut feeling. Yeah, definitely. I know that in the sitting which I end up passing, because like you, I, I didn't pass first time either, is that it's a similar situation, really. I felt like I'd done really, I, I don't know if I'd done enough to pass my first time, but I thought I'd done like a good innings. Like I felt like I'd maybe, you know, I'd, I'd done a respectable job. And I thought, you know, fair enough, maybe I didn't pass. I, I felt like I'd done my best at the time. But I actually went in second time feeling very underprepared, felt like, you know, this isn't going to go well at all. And then, you know, sure enough, I come out and pass. So like you say, you can't trust your gut with all with, with these things. One question I was going to ask is, do you have any sort of pre-exam superstitions or any sort of comforts that you like to sort of hold dear in, in these sort of stressful situations? Uh, no, is, is, is a short answer. Um, the slightly longer answer is that between sitting paces the first time and getting my results where I failed, it seemed like every day I saw a single magpie everywhere. And obviously single magpie is bad luck. And it seemed like every single time I walked to work or walked from work, work or walked to wherever I went, I always saw one magpie. And then in, and then I failed, obviously. And then in the second sitting between sitting it and getting my results, I saw a lot of double magpies. So good luck. So now obviously it's going to be deeply ingrained in my psyche that the magpies can predict the future. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's very, very unique, but I mean, now it's in your psyche. You're never going to be able to ignore that, I think. And then going into the actual station itself, I mean, yeah, we're not going to go into the specifics of of exactly what came up because that would be sort of unfair on, on the center, but in terms of how fair you think the exam was, and maybe how it differed compared to the sitting which you weren't successful. How did you feel that the stations were in terms of fairness or unfairness? And were there any sort of big curveballs which came your way, which, you know, threw you? Um, I think overall, both the sitting I failed and the, and the second sitting I passed, I think all the stations were fair, particularly the clinical stations, I think, were fair. 
In my experience, I think you have the very standard paces stations, which, you know, it's like a kidney transplant with an old fistula. That's a very standard paces case. And I think the examiner would probably expect you to do well on that. So the bar would be higher to pass, say. And I had some stations like that, like standard paces stations. And then sometimes I got some stations that were a bit different, a bit, you know, a bit of a curveball. Um, not going into any specifics, as you said, but some of them were a bit, you know, not something you could revise for per se. But in those stations, you do the examination, you present your findings and present a reasonable differential. And I think because they're not standard paces stations, the examiner cuts you some slack, the bars lower to pass. And you can talk through with the examiner what you think is happening. And the examiner, you know, might ask you some pointed questions to help guide you to make those harder stations on paper actually be more fair and reasonable. Whereas if you didn't get, if someone had a kidney transplant and you missed it, I don't think they would cut you any slack there because that's sort of a standard paces thing you should know. Insofar as these standard paces stations one bit of advice I got that was very useful was to make sure you revise and know off the top of your head the sort of etiology and differential diagnoses for the standard stations because, um, say, so thinking still about the kidney transplant, so know that it can be caused by diabetes, polycystic kidneys, glomerulonephritis, hypertension, and know those things off the top of your head because I don't think the examiners will cut you any slack for missing those. Whereas if you don't get someone's weird genetic condition, I don't think they would really care. So, yes, that's what I think. So I think the stations overall were fair. And the way that the examiners interacted with me on the whole whole, with the stations, even if they were more difficult, I think it was I think it was fair enough. Yeah, completely agree with the advice on the on the renal transplant, but also that goes across the spectrum of pretty much all the classic examination cases. So it would be the same for something like prosthetic heart valves, aortic stenosis, um, Parkinson's disease, COPD, pulmonary fibrosis, all the all the barn door classics is having a list pretty much already in your head before you enter the station with almost a semi expectation that something classic like that could come up. And then, yeah, you mentioned a bit about your experience with the examiners. How uh, how helpful did you find them? So I think it I think it depended on which station. It was a mixed bag, really. The stations that were classic paces stations, they just stood in front of me and said differential diagnosis, investigations, management, and I had to reel off rote learning of those cases, basically. Um, which I think is a reasonable approach for simple stations. And then some of the more, the other stations that were more difficult, they questioned you, guided you a little bit. And I think that's what, that's the the skill of being a good examiner, I think. I mean, I'm not an examiner, I know nothing about it, but I imagine the skill of an examiner is being able to guide the candidate and let them get the best out of them kind of thing. Um, and some of them did that and it was it was obvious and it was helpful and let me demonstrate what I know. But that was more for the tricky cases. For the easy cases, I think they, they they expected me more just to lead it myself. So then thinking about after the exam, so you've gone through this, you know, heavily traumatic and as you said, invasive experience. <laughs> Since you've passed, have you found that any skills that you've utilized either through your revision or preparation for the exam, have they translated in any way into your clinical practice? So I have a very love-hate relationship, I think, with paces. The hate aspect of it, I think, is fairly obvious from what I've said. But the love aspect is 
I do think that the revision from it has improved my clinical ability. And it kind of pains me to say it because I want to say, oh, it's a stupid exam. You know, it doesn't help. It costs loads of money. You know, it takes over your life. It doesn't help. But it does help. And I don't think I've ever done a proper neurological examination before revising for PACES. Skills I've learned by revising for PACES have actually helped me make diagnoses in the middle of the night that has actually benefited patients, which I suppose that's the point of doing it all, isn't it? Um, and certainly it's helped me. You can, I can see the impact it has on stuff I do clinically so much more than part one or part two. Yeah, well, great, great to hear. And yeah, I completely agree that although, you know, you do you do have this uh, relationship with paces where, you know, it's a means to an end in, in many ways. But actually, when you start seeing it, applying your clinical practice that's when you sort of realize well oh, well, actually this exam you know it is helpful and actually maybe it's not a load of rubbish and then the next thing i was going to ask is you know you you had a significant amount of time and, and had had a revision journey which is two or three times the length of the, the number of sittings which you actually had so what do you think your highest yield revision activities were? What do you think of the things which really made the difference between you, you know, learning a little bit and, you know, learning a significant amount from your revision? Uh, there's a few things, really. I think um, revision courses is actually one of them. And I know people have this kind of love to hate relationship with uh, revision courses because you shouldn't have to pay for it and, you know, things like that. But uh, my deanery has an unlimited study budget, and I think PACE's revision courses are incredibly high yield. In my experience, I've spent hours walking around the wards, you know, seven, eight o'clock at night, trying to find one case and it being an aortic stenosis or, you know, something that you, you, you could easily get, you know, you diagnose it on the day. It's not a tricky sign. Um, and in the same amount of time on a course, you can see maybe like 10 cases and they're classic, you know, and the difficult ones that you don't see in real life, like Marfan syndrome or uh, diastolic moment, you know, things like that you don't see in real life. So I think a strategic paces course at the right time in your revision to let you pick up these signs and practice, I think is is very high yield. Another thing I'd, I'd say is, um, I, I touched on it earlier, but I think a high yield tip is rote learn some of the differential diagnosis lists for the common paces station. You know, like spastic paraparesis, peripheral neuropathy, hepatomate, like know what causes those things. That because that helped me a lot because one thing that no one tells you when you go and sit paces is that when you're in there, your mind is running 100 miles an hour. You are nowhere near as logical. I mean, I'm not logical anyway, but if I were logical normally my mind would not be as logical as that in the exam. Your brain turns to mush effectively, and it's a lot easier to have structured, rote-learned things in your head to just recite in the exam that require no frontal lobe function, which you lose all of during the exam. Um, and the final thing I'd say is that everyone's got that one station or one exam or one condition that they are dreading coming up. Um, and their way, well, at least my way of dealing with that is just to ignore it and, and not revise it and just hope it doesn't happen. But I would suggest revise for that because that is the one thing that will come up. <laughs> so if it's cranial nerves or fundoscopy or a diet, whatever, take the bull by the horns, I think, um, 
and revise your weak areas more than your strong areas. I mean, for me, that's neurology and fundoscopy, cranial nerves, you know. Um, but I think, yeah, so that's what I'd say, the high yield um, tactics for the exam. Perfect. Great advice there. And one thing I just wanted to ask was you mentioned about courses. How close to your most recent sitting did you sit your course? Was it, you know, a month before, two months before? So I've, um, I'm not going to advertise any courses on this, but I, I've sat three courses in my paces revision journey. Um, one was back in the first sitting in 2020, and that was about a month and a half before my potential sitting. And in hindsight, I think that was too long from the paces date to sit it. Um, obviously, I didn't sit paces that time because it was cancelled. But um, so that was about a month and a half. Um, and then one, I did another one-day course in there as well, which is my second course. The most recent sitting, I sat the course about a week before my exam, um, just because that was the only sitting. Because obviously in the pandemic, all the, all the uh, courses were cancelled and I just saw there was this one advertised. I was like, okay, I might as well just go for it. So that was a week before my exam. And I actually found that very helpful. Maybe it's because I revised so long before that it didn't... The, the, it was very close to the exam um, for me. So what that course mainly did for me was increase my confidence. And I think a lot of, well, like probably like 60% of paces is coming across like you know what you're talking about. Um, and having and not getting flummoxed with something that doesn't fit the mould or something that confuses you and just powering through it. So I think the confidence to get through all those things and then reflect that in the exam Um is what I learned from that course that was just before my exam. So I went into the exam with all the confidence of that, of that course. Um, and me thinking, okay, well, no, I heard the diastolic murmur. I can, you know, I can do it. So if there's a diastolic murmur tomorrow, I can hear it because I heard it yesterday. So why can't I hear it tomorrow? And it's that kind of confidence I think actually did help me compared to the course I sat the first time, you know, a month, month and a half is a very long time. So some of that weans a little bit. So it's a very long answer to say it's difficult to say. And I suppose it depends a lot on how you are as a person and, and how your confidence is as a baseline as well, I think. But I think confidence is very important for paces and getting the course close enough to increase your confidence, but not too close that it stresses you out um, because that will obviously impact on your confidence and reduce it. So I suspect a few weeks probably before the exam is best. Um, so not too early and not too close. Yeah, I think that's really important. It's a really important point because it does depend on what sort of person you are because, and also depends on what function you see the course providing. Some people might see it like as a dress rehearsal, like just before the exam, it's like, right, this is going to be how it is on the day. I feel like I've worked really hard. I've, I've memorized all this stuff and I want to make sure that this is essentially a dress rehearsal for the exam on the day. Whereas some people might see it as more like a learning opportunity and an opportunity to see these signs. And I think that can be really troublesome because those types of people might look at the people who are nearer to their exam and say, oh, my God, like, look at these people. They're so more, much more prepared than me, when actually they're probably just at a slightly different time in their preparation. So, yeah, 100% agree with that. And, and the, I guess the advice we'd give listeners is just consider what kind of function you see the course providing and what kind of person you are and how it would be likely to affect your vision if you saw someone performing you know, extremely well in front of you. 
So my last question basically was if, if you were going to give advice to or one piece of advice to our listeners or consider, you know, giving a piece of advice to yourself when you first started out your Pacers journey, what do you think that piece of advice would be? Uh, my one piece of advice probably would be don't revise for an expensive high stakes clinical exam in the middle of a global pandemic. Um, but I do appreciate that this is probably not very transferable. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not, not that transferable at the moment. And fingers crossed we're not due another um, pandemic for at least another couple of hundred years. But hey, maybe maybe they may well look back at the archive of this podcast and, and take that advice on board. I think pretty much we are just about out of time for this episode of the Pre-Paces podcast, but we have been delighted to be joined by hashtag MedTwitterRoyalty and now Marquess of the MRCP, once a pauper touting porphyria. Thank you very much, Dr. Ben Besker, MRCP, for joining us on this episode of the Pre-Paces podcast. Thank you very much. Thanks. And guys, we love bringing you these episodes with people like Ben who've had such an, a prolonged and lengthy experience of paces and if you enjoy the podcast and you think this has been helpful for you in your revision journey then please do like comment and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts make sure to follow us on social media on twitter it's at prepaces podcast you can email us prepaces podcast at gmail.com but we will see you next time on the prepaces podcast <laughs> <laughs>